pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story recently told by someone that I just cannot believe that the details of it actually happened. You ever hear a story like that? In fact, the details seem so unlikely that I still to this moment wonder if the event described happened at all, let alone the way it was actually described. Yet the story was told with a sort of total presentation and bold delivery that would have made it hard for anyone to imagine that it didn't happen. And I wondered if the person had convinced themselves so much that it happened that they were able to inhabit a kind of boldness to say that they were describing a real set of events, although they were just deceiving themselves about it. Now, we all know this is a possibility, We all know at times we've believed our own stories to the point that we repeat them over and over in details about them, why we did something, how something happened, where we know we adjusted something or twisted something, but after a while of telling about this event over and over and over again, it's almost as though we believe it ourselves. We all know that this kind of self-deception is a powerful thing that we're capable of. The worst kinds of self-deception are the ones that fundamentally keep us from considering our true condition before God. Self-deception in the details of our lives, that's one thing. But self-deception about who we are before God, the substance of our real spiritual condition, what God is like and how we've concluded the, about things about Him, self-deception about that is the worst kind of self-deception. I tremble to think of how many of us present may have deceived ourselves into thinking that we're just fine spiritually while one look in the mirror of God's word would tell us otherwise. Listen, I I plead with you this morning to lean in and hear what God may have to say to you this morning. And let these words awaken you from any self-deception you have about your spiritual life and your spiritual condition. It has the power to do so. These words, this message, what James writes here, has an awakening power to it that could awaken you from a sense of self-deception. I don't know if you recognized in the passage the pattern of self-deception being addressed, but the main idea in this text is that we avoid self-deception about our faith by engaging in practical obedience. You see, God uses the calling to practical obedience to his word to urge us to see our own self-deception about whether we really trust him. And so the main thing that James is concerned about here is loosening us from our self-deception. And we avoid self-deception about our faith by engaging in what, what James is going to describe here is a practical sort of obedience. Ultimately, James provides some help for us to deal with self-deception. He shows us the sort of things that generally result from saving faith in verses 22 through 27. 
He's talking about the things that spring forth from the genuine seed of saving faith. What does it look like? And by looking a bit more closely at the text, it can help us consider whether we are deceiving ourselves about our spiritual condition. And it can give us a clearer picture of what actually results when we generally receive the Word of God by faith. Last week, at the end of verse 21, we saw this calling to receive with meekness, meaning humility, gentleness, the implanted Word of the Gospel. God's Word being received in us, but now being able to take root, comes out then in producing actual fruit. And James says that there are things that happen when we genuinely, with meekness, receive the Word that is able to save our souls. It also is practically able to change our actions. And he wants to make sure that we don't divide our hearing of the promise of the gospel from our actions in walking by faith. So we avoid this self-deception by experiencing the challenge of actually a spiritual life, a religion, a calling from God to practice obedience. And in the practice of obedience, we find out how much we trust God. What's really there? As we are forced to reckon with who we are and what we want and what God says and what He desires, it begins to shine on us like a light and show us things like a mirror. So, here we're going to see two things that, that, are, that really help us in this passage under two broad headings. We're just going to dive into the verses. First in 22 through 25, in that first section of the text that we read this morning, we see that genuine faith unites hearing and doing. Genuine faith. Faith that isn't self-deceived, in James' words, unites our hearing and doing. He says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see that? If you're the type that underlines in your Bible, you might want to underline deceiving yourselves. What he's doing is he's equating, separating our hearing from our doing, hearing the promise of the gospel, the comfort of God's grace from our actual way of life and desire to go on in obedience. When we separate those selves, we deceive ourselves about whether we have any genuine faith at all. And what he's saying is, genuine faith doesn't separate our hearing and doing. It unites the two, and it causes us to confront who we are and adjust ourselves to who God is. It unites our hearing and doing. There's probably no more familiar verse in the book of James than what we see here in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In these few verses, James challenges us to think about our relationship, particularly to God's instruction. Our relationship to God's instruction as a way of examining our life for self-deception. Genuine faith in Christ comes with a transformed relationship to God's Word. One of the ways to look into your life and say, do I have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, is to ask yourself, what is my posture towards His instruction and His Word? 
Because what happens when we receive with meekness the implanted word of God, the promise of the gospel in Jesus Christ, it changes our posture to all of his instruction and our ethics and our practice. He becomes Lord. Repentance looks like this. In fact, we know that the way that we respond to the gospel isn't by proving we're good enough and gather up good works, but by actually repenting from our false works and trusting that God receives us by grace. That repentance and faith looks like trusting the promise that Jesus' death on the cross covers our sins and repenting in a way that trusts our lives to his direction. Where that's not present, there's no genuine faith. Repentance and faith are the appropriate response to the gospel call. And so in these few verses, James challenges us to think about our relationship to God's word or God's instruction to examine the genuineness of our faith. We unite the hearing of the word with active doing of it in our lives when we have received the word with meekness. In the scripture, you know, we see that James is, what James is saying here is, of course, nothing new. He's saying nothing new. The apostle Paul, who clearly teaches that salvation, we're saved by faith, we come into Christ by faith, still shows us that genuine salvation results in an ongoing change of life and practical obedience to God. Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified or declared righteous. It's a practical faith that trusts Jesus and transforms us onto good works. That's what genuine faith looks like. James is really saying something that Jesus himself emphasized over and over in his teaching. You could even argue that James is speaking about this here because of how often Jesus mentions it. Many scholars argue that James, in his whole book, has the Sermon on the Mount in mind when he talks about his various ethical instructions and the practical instructions, especially when he talks here about the perfect law of liberty because what we see Jesus taking the the current understanding of the Old Testament Mosaic law and he is is actually focusing on, on what it would look like if it truly met its end to help us love God and love our neighbor. And he does that in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why here he calls it the perfect law, the perfected law as Jesus has interpreted it for us, given it to us, and it sets us free, he says. It's a law of liberty. And so Jesus frees us from a weird kind of bondage to the law for our hope to know that God's grace is the only hope for us being reconciled to him, but then God's way is true freedom. And so James here is commenting on things Jesus has already told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So just because you say, I like Jesus, doesn't mean you have genuine faith. Just because you would say, generally I'm for him, doesn't mean you have genuine faith. One of the marks of genuine faith that James is showing here is that our faith produces practical obedience. 
Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everybody who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus doesn't just invite us into a faith that can transform us for the future, that can deliver salvation for the future, but that can solidify us on the rock so that when the real storms of life comes, we remain secure in Him. It's practical. Luke 8, 21. Jesus is told outside, your mother and sister and brother have come. And he says this to those who are urging him to go greet them. He says, he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What does it look like to be family with Jesus? It looks like hearing the word of God and doing it. A real actual practice of obedience. John 13, 17. Jesus is in the upper room at the Passover. He has washed the disciples' feet. He has told them that the way to true significance, the real way is to serve one another. To get the towel and on your knees. If you want to bless people, if you really want to be like God, imitate your master, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will wash people people's feet. Washing the feet there, of course, not only was a practice, but it was, it was a necessity in that culture that a servant would need to do. And that's the kind of posture we have, he says, when we, that's how we relate to those around us when we are submitted to Christ. And he says, if you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing is in the doing. Jesus' words, blessed are you if you do them, in John 13, sound almost exactly like James' word here when he describes a doer who acts. A doer who acts, he will be blessed, James just told us in James 1. He will be blessed in his doing. Where do we experience the blessing of the all-wise God? Our faith says that we have believed that God is all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, and invites us into a reconciled relationship out of, his, out of our sins into family with Him. And where and how do we experience that blessing being delivered of having a wise, loving Father? We experience it in the doing of His Word. The blessing, James says, Jesus says, Paul says, is in the doing. So here we see James uniting faith and doing in a special way. There's this old story I heard uh, uh, many times about a high wire artist that was going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. I have no idea if this story is true or one of those preacher's tales. I'm just going to be honest with you. I hope it's true. Maybe it is. One time I looked it up and I thought I came to the conclusion that it probably was true. No matter. The tightrope guy, he's got it going on there. He gathers the crowd. And as he's getting ready, he hypes him up and he says, Do you believe I can do this? 
And of course, the crowd starts cheering and say, yes, we believe it. Yes, we believe it. Do it. Do it. Yes, we believe it. He said, okay, okay, okay. So he says back to them, not only am I going to walk across the tightrope with, uh, on, my, on my feet, but I'm also going to walk across the tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow. Do you believe that I can walk across a tightrope over Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow? And of course, the crowd, full of confidence, they've come to see this happen. And they're saying, yes, I believe you. We believe in you. We believe you can do it. And he's like, all right. Settles him down again. And he says, I got one more thing. Just give me one more thing. I'm not just going to walk across the tightrope. I'm not just going to walk across the tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow, but I'm going to walk across the tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow with a person sitting in it. Do you believe that I can do it? And of course the crowd is like, absolutely. You're amazing. You can do it. Yes, we believe. And he looks and there's a guy just saying, yes, we believe. I believe it. And he looks at him and he says, okay, you get in the wheelbarrow. What's the point? What does the illustration show us? It shows us that we know deep down that a faith that does not turn into action is really no faith at all. It's no trust at all. That we know this. Believing in Jesus but not letting his instruction govern our lives and turn into practical action reveals that there is really a substantial lack of faith in him or none at all. So if there is a big gap between our believing and doing, we would say there might actually be no faith there. We're self-deceived. And I think one of the greatest blessings God could do for you, as uncomfortable as it may be for you to admit today, might be to take a good examination of your life and realize you've been self-deceived about your condition before God. You've never come to a place of genuine repentance and faith where you've entrusted to yourself to him in a saving way. It's not just, I'll vote for Jesus. Genuine faith produces practical obedience. So the genuine response of faith is an ongoing thing in our life. What we see then as we look at the illustration, we, we kind of have the main idea there in verse 22. As we look at verses 23 and 24, we see that the genuine response of faith is an ongoing comparison of our lives to Jesus' teaching that is joined with persevering action. That there's this ongoing work of comparing our lives to Jesus' teaching that is transformative day by day into maturity. In order to help us see that, James provides his own illustration. Forget mine for a moment. It's a pretty straightforward one that James gives us. The self-deceived person that he's talking about is like the person, he says, who looks in the mirror, sees for a moment what the truth is, but chooses to walk away and forget what has been seen. That is verse 23 and 24. Here's the sermon, reads the word, doesn't bother to take it heart, to heart and hold on to it as we go on. Just a hearer. Maybe you've done that often. Maybe you've done it permanently. Just been a hearer. Theoretical religion with no practical obedience. Hoping it's good enough. 
We even have a level of self-deception beyond this that James talks about today. The one who thinks they have genuine faith but never bothers to look into the mirror of God's Word at all. And thinks they're okay with the God they vaguely believe in. And has no idea what the mirror would show them. And no interest in finding out what God would like to reveal. James gives an alternative to this sort of unwillingness to yield to what we discover in the mirror in verse 25. It's built around what we do with a mirror. Think about it practically for a moment. When we use a mirror, what we do is we use the mirror to interrupt our self-perception that we have inside of us with a glance at what can actually be seen in reality. That's what we do, you know. Think about it. I'm getting ready to leave the house. I assume that I look just fine. I stop by the mirror. I compare what I think is the case with what I actually see and discover that this morning's blueberry smoothie has left me with blue teeth and a purple mustache that I was totally unaware of. And I compare what I thought was the case as I was going to just glance and move on with my day with what is actually true in reality that the mirror has shown me. So instead of ignoring it and wondering why people are looking at me weird all day, I act on the information and I remedy the situation. That would be the reasonable reply to a good look in the mirror. James is saying that this is the right way for a person of genuine faith to relate to God's Word. We see it as a mirror that we look into and compare our perception of how we're doing spiritually with what it actually says clearly. Then we respond to what it has shown us about our lives by taking appropriate action in line with its teaching. By doing so, we are expressing our genuine faith in Christ and experiencing the actual blessing of a life that is guided by our Heavenly Father, instructed by our loving Savior. And we grow in practical obedience as a result. So I just want to ask you, is that the relationship that you have to God's Word? Is your relationship to God's Word, the type that James describes here, where you believe God's Word to be a mirror that allows you to genuinely see the truth about yourself? Or have you determined that you are actually the governor of God's Word? That instead, your relationship is when you don't see something, when you see something in God's Word that challenges you or you don't like, you just change God's Word. You just Put a sticker over that part of the mirror. I don't want to see that. I don't believe that. It's interesting that we could believe in God and believe that He wouldn't ever challenge us in any way if He were to tell if, if we were able to get the truth out of Him. But people do this all the time. As we relate to God's Word, we adjust it to our wisdom. But it just doesn't work that way. As we move into verses 26 and 27, James then gives some general examples of what this united in hearing, hearing and doing will look like. So, so first we see that, that really genuine faith unites our hearing and doing. And then James begins to say, but there's also some patterns in God's word that are really consequential for what it looks like to, to get involved in the doing of God's word. 
We read them, but I want to read them again. If anyone thinks he is religious, doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see a second thing. The second main idea this morning is that genuine faith perseveres in difficult obedience. That imitating God challenges us at a deep level. When we really come to know ourselves and understand ourselves, we realize that we will be challenged at a deep level if we are going to imitate God. And genuine faith perseveres in this difficult obedience. If you notice in verse 25, the positive response to the mirror, the the mirror of God's word, it's described as persevering in what we have seen. That's That's an amazing phrase, persevering in what we have seen. It sort of describes the Christian life in a sense. It says that, that I, as I hear God's word and I'm challenged by its difficulties, what genuine faith does is it, it continues to persevere and take a long walk in the direction of God's instruction. Because the assumption is, is that we're going to encounter difficult and at times overwhelming calls to obedience. And that genuine faith perseveres in that. This is a way, this is the way a life of faith is described as a walk of progress toward the things that God's word teaches are true. The Greek word means to continue and stay nearby. So when it says persevere, it, it means sort of to, to sort of draw near to God, to remain close to God's word, to remain close to God himself. That we are to, in a sense, with our lives, as an act of genuine faith, seek to stay near to the Lord. It's a word picture of, a, of doing those things that he does. Avoiding those places that don't honor him. We persevere in what we have seen by staying near to God. This is what James is showing us. Later, he's going to call it drawing near to God, knowing that he draws near to us. But it paints the picture of staying nearby to what God is doing in a way that keeps our religious practices from being worthless, James says. As has been the theme here, James wants us to experience what could be described as practical religion. Practical religion rather than worthless religion. Now some of you, to be honest, aren't comfortable with the word religion uh, at all, but you got to understand words are used differently in different contexts. Mostly, modernly at this point, we have, because of this kind of idea that that we need a relationship with God, which is entirely true, we've sort of pitted it off against sort of religious exercise and said, you know, I've got a relationship rather than a religion, which I think think captures something true in a good sense. We want to be related to God by faith. There's a real, it's it's familial. It's not just, um, it's not just sort of practices that are empty or rituals. But that doesn't mean there aren't practices and obedience, even ritual aspects of genuine faith that belong to it. And we shouldn't be so quick to jettison the word religion as though it's always in a negative context. Here, James is not using it in a negative way. 
He's using it to be kind of the sum of spiritual practices that we have in our lives. The things we do to keep ourselves near to God in the ways that we walk through life imitating Him, He calls the whole of that religion. So, to be honest, our walk with the Lord, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, creates a certain type of religious exercise and practice in our life. And the question is, is it genuine and substantive, or is it worthless? Is it practical, leading on to obedience and imitation of Christ, or is it worthless and empty and it never changes or transforms anything we actually do? There's a lot of religion and spirituality that is in vogue today because it won't ask you to change anything about yourself. It will just affirm you exactly as you are. And man, that sounds so nice, especially because, let's be honest, religious teaching has been used like a hammer far too often. And so it's easy to respond and go, just give me a spirituality that will affirm me and remind me that God is for me and not against me, which the gospel does. But we also see James doesn't let the, swing, the pendulum swing all the way over there to say the God who meets you where you're at just wants to leave you there and affirm you. He actually wants to bring life to you because sin has broken the deepest things about us. And, and so what happens is the, the God who meets us in our brokenness brings us on to wholeness and completion. He retrains our eyes and our hearts, our desires, everything about us so that we become people who don't have a worthless religion but substantive practical life with God. This is what God wants us to experience. Religion in this good sense really captures the things we engage in that keep us aware that life is sacred and belongs to God. He is present with us. In this world, we, God is there and we need to cultivate our life with this awareness that we can draw near to God in a world where He meets us in sacred places as we walk with Him. And James says that we avoid self-deception by persevering in the nearness to the Lord. So, what sort of things, how do we get a sense of God's nearness and then allow it to impact us? And he gives us three ways here. Three ways that a nearness to the Lord will change you if you cultivate it. If you stay near to his word, we'll use it like a mirror. We trust the power of his presence in our lives. It's going to change you in these three particular ways. Not, these aren't the only ways, but James is really concerned that we would understand these three. And I want, you to, show, I want to show them to you uh, quickly as we think about how we persevere in this difficult obedience. First, we honor God's presence when we speak. We honor the sense that God has drawn us near to him with the way we speak at all times. James is going to go into it further in chapter 3 when he addresses the use of our tongue or our speech more specifically. But for today, listen, it's important for us to know that any religion that does not call upon us to consider the power of our words is a worthless religion. It doesn't transform the way that we speak to one another, to our neighbor, in a society of toxic words, any spiritual belief that doesn't transform that is worthless. Any religious faith we claim that does not urge us to adjust ourselves to the sacred gift God has given us as people who can communicate with one another, 
who can share deeply from the well of our lives, who can speak life with the words that we have, who can encourage, who can take ideas and conceive them and help us dream and envision how we can honor the Lord. That's a sacred gift that we should not take for granted. And any religious practice that doesn't transform that is worthless. James describes our natural state as that of a person with, that is like an untamed horse. It says, left to ourselves, our words, our speech would be like an untamed horse. Reckless. We're free and unable to be harnessed for any good purpose. It's a picture of recklessness. When we do not consider that our ability to communicate is a sacred gift from God, we often use our words in ways that are reckless and damaging. When we don't imagine and, and, and remember as we believe that every word we speak, we speak in the presence of God with a nearness to Him, there's no telling what we'll say. Our beliefs tell us that God is present when we speak and our words belong to Him. It's humbling. Anyone who takes this look in the mirror will tremble at what they see. If you claim genuine faith and are not persevering, in the bridling of your tongue, walking along with God and making progress, then the religious faith you claim is worthless, according to James. Unbridled gossip, profanity, manipulation, deceit, harsh criticism, these all should trouble the people of God, and by comparison to the mirror of God's word, progress is made by those who possess genuine faith in these things. So we see that in the words. The second way he calls us to practical obedience is he, he says that we, experience, we are to experience God's presence among the vulnerable. Pure and undefiled religion, he says, is visiting the widow and the orphan in their affliction. The Bible says that God is near to the brokenhearted. He is a father to the fatherless. That God is in a special way present to vulnerable people. He's particularly concerned for those who most naturally may not have means to be cared for. The classic examples, of course, in the ancient world uh, are seen here as he mentions orphans and widows. It was not a small task to care for orphans and widows in the ancient world. It meant to take someone into your life most of the time. At the very least, it meant to bring them so near that you can give regular aid and comfort to them in a natural and helpful way. Listen, while it can sometimes feel overwhelming to think about all the need that there is in the world, we must be more convinced that God gives the opportunity to us to draw near to people in vulnerable situations. He gives the opportunity to us as a sacred calling to meet Him there, to be near with God as He's near to the brokenhearted. We have to have this conviction It can transform us when we draw near. We have this sacred calling to experience a transformation in our faith that moves it from theoretical to practical by helping people in vulnerable situations. And so when we avoid drawing near to people with genuine needs in their lives, we miss out actually on experiencing God's presence and the sacredness of walking with God. Some of you fear the brokenness of the world. 
the hardness of difficult situations, the overwhelming sense that you may not be able to help in the ways that you wish. And it's a lot easier to stay aloof. James says, actually, no, that's where our faith is galvanized and strengthened and shaped and transformed into something that looks more like God. When we avoid drawing near to people with genuine needs in their lives, we miss out on experiencing God's presence and the sacredness of walking with Him. You know, that requires perseverance. Genuine faith does not turn a blind eye because of the sheer magnitude of need in the world. We can't do everything, I'll admit it. I think Jesus even acknowledged it when He said, the poor you will always have with you, but Jesus' instruction wasn't then to ignore the poor but that there were appropriate times to sit at his feet and hear him to be stirred and connected to abiding in the vine and his heart so that then we can engage in ways that actually help and transform. That worshiping him has a transformative effect on how we walk out into the world. At Pillar, we try to provide some ways for you to engage in helping people in vulnerable situations. We cannot do everything, but we should engage in serving people in vulnerable situations in real practical ways that cost every one of us our time and energy. I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm telling you to join God who is already doing it and invites you to meet Him there for your own faith to grow and be transformed. Our Project 127 ministry helps us work together uh, with Uh, to do orphan care through foster care and adoption. If you're looking for practical on-ramps to getting involved, you can stop by the welcome table, connect with Lauren Welch, who's down here in the front, or Jennifer Clifton to find out more about next steps and getting involved in that particular type of ministry. God has blessed our church as many families have leaned into serving in foster care of adopted children and discovering God's heart for people in vulnerable situations. Our Neighbors to Nations ministry has been our practical effort to help Afghan refugees as they settle in our area. It's another way that we engage in this sort of work of caring for people in vulnerable situations. I've been reminded how important it is to just show up. Because that's what he says, visit people in their affliction. Those are James' words. Sometimes we think we've got to come in with a strategy when God just says, why don't you show up? We'll figure it out together. And we can, get, we can do nothing for long periods of time in situations of need because we just won't show up. Well, I was challenged by that as I've been preparing and uh, I had the opportunity to get more involved with one of our refugee families uh, recently over the past few weeks. A couple Fridays ago, I got a message from a friend that said that they had an address for a family that really needed support. When I noticed that it said that one of them spoke English, I thought, okay, this is easy enough. I don't need a translator. The rest of my family was busy on that Friday. It was my day off, and I really didn't have any plans, so I just decided to go knock on the door at the address. Now, I'm not going to go deep into the story, but here's what it reminded me. I I had no idea what I was going to do when I went there or what sort of needs were there or how I was going to help. There's some things that they need that I haven't even come close to being able to help with. And so, but, I, but I went by and I just said, I don't know what you need, but I got your information and I would love to figure out how I can help. You know, our church would love to support you. And uh, it, this is what it reminded me. We don't always need a great sta- strategy, but we do need to show up. 
We need to show up and be a part of it. Here, here it says, visit people in their affliction. When we do that, what happens is God begins to show us how to care. And it's not just that he shows us how to care. He begins to produce in us a genuine faith that turns into loving desire. See, what, what seemed like a responsibility and assignment turned into, by showing up, it turns into a relationship, a friendship, something we begin to desire to do as we hear people's stories and understand. All of a sudden, we find that we're not just trying to do the bare minimum to say that we've done the work, but we want to we figure out how to solve the real problems. You know, I want to help this family at this point, not out of some religious obligation, but because in showing up, God used that moment to produce a real actual concern. Which brings me to the point, if you have an extra laptop, they need a laptop so they can do business, and it would be a practical way that you could give a laptop that functions, that works, to that family. I'd be glad to deliver them. We could go deliver it together, however you want to do it. But those sort of practical things show up when you're, when you're there. And I don't know what the situation is. We, we try to provide some opportunities where we do it corporately as a church, but this isn't a corporate thing. James is saying this is how we live as we disperse into our communities. We walk in when other people walk out. We show up in situations where people are vulnerable, not because we believe we have the resources, but we, we believe God is already there. And if we entrust ourselves to him, we can be a part of something he will do. And it shows us that all of us are vulnerable. And God wants to invite us into our weakness so that we can be transformed. Last, we see that we have this responsibility to, in some sense, steward God's sacred presence in our lives. Here's what I mean by that. The last thing he says is genuine religion cares about remaining aware of the purity of God's love and joy in a world that is full of real pollution spiritually. This instruction at the end isn't about us avoiding being among people who do not know or honor God. It's about us participating in the values, activities, pursuits, and purposes in the world that are contrary to God and His purposes. See, what happens is so many times we don't use any discernment or any thought about the kind of places we inhabit, the kind of people we spend time with, the activities that are going on, their relationship to God. And when we're not discerning about that and we think it has no effect on us, we are foolish to think that, it, that the stains of sin won't cover our lives. I mean, some of us have, have swung so far away from a sense of legalism that says you can't watch that movie or do that to the point that we have just opened our lives, whether it's the entertainment industry or the kind of things we think are okay, the places that people 200 years ago, honestly, Christians would have said it would be shocking to go. We, we just think nothing of it. And, and, and I'm not saying that everybody's been right 200 years ago and people are right now, but, but what we need is discernment that says there are just some places that, that the presence of God will never go with you. There are some activities where you are purposely saying, God, I don't care about being near to you. There are some values that the world wants to press onto you that God has nothing to do with. And going into those things, supporting those things, showing up in those things means that you're showing up without him. And he says, James, that real religion <laughs> that isn't worthless has some boundaries. 
and cares most of all about the purity of God's presence and joy. And there's probably some practical things in every one of our lives that we need to examine. So that we aren't drawn day by day by day by day into a cesspool of sin that we think, and we tell ourselves as we think it's not affecting me. But he says, real religion draws some boundaries because it cares about drawing near to God, walking with him, and being near to him. This whole message is built on one premise. Salvation comes from outside of us. The mirror shows us who we are because inside we are lost, even in ourselves, in our own self-deception. It comes from Jesus Christ and it's delivered to those who are willing to compare their lives to His holiness and admit that they are truly sinners. Because of His identity as God's Son, His righteous life and teaching, His sacrificial death on the cross, the worst of sinners can receive grace when we humble ourselves in front of what the mirror has shown us, admit our sin, and bring our life before Him as our Savior and Lord for renewal and transformation. That coming to Christ by faith is the foundation of a religion worth having. It won't just stay as an idea, but puts us into relationship to Him, to Jesus as our Lord, and leads to a life that is shaped by Him as we submit ourselves to His instruction and teaching, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, experience change. Listen, if you've had nothing but worthless religious practice, I want to urge you today, flee from self-deception to the clear invitation of Jesus on the cross into a life that he will lead you into as you repent and believe in this genuine faith received with meekness turns into practical action. If you've never experienced that, I would encourage you today, don't remain in your self-deception. Don't convince yourself out of your need for him today, but humble yourself and draw near now. You will find that he's ready to welcome you to forgive you, to fill you, and transform you by the power of his word that can save your soul. Let's pray. Lord, even as we go into this time, would you grant us a spirit of repentance? Lord, as we've looked in this mirror, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to be people who desire practical obedience, we wouldn't see it as divided off from genuine faith. But we would know, Lord, that as we come to you by faith, you have transforming power. And we would seek it, we would hunger for it. Lord, I pray for any person here who's never turned to you by faith, that even right now as they sit right now, if you've released any this morning from that self-deception, would your spirit, Lord, fill them with faith and repentance that they would turn to you, trust in you, and be willing to identify with you as their Lord and their Savior, to part from sin, to walk with you in the beauty of holiness. Lord, we ask for this today. In Jesus' name, amen. In this moment, as we go into a time of the Lord,